Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 137, The Decline and Recovery of the Welsh Church. Hey, welcome back to the podcast as we start a brand new year, and it is during this year that we will be approaching a lot of significant events in Welsh history, as always, and chief among these is reaching the final point of what I call the singular flow of our narrative. By the end of 2021, I believe this podcast will be on a new trajectory, and one that is just as fulfilling as it had been previously, but one that won't be as linear as probably what most people are used to at this point, especially with this particular podcast. We'll be going over different generations, different eras, and jumping back and forth in time as we focus more on subject matter over, say, you know, a specific climbing ahead on various people. And this in result, of course, because we are going to have a multitude of sources burst upon us in a very short amount of time that will change the way we look at Welsh history and how we can evaluate it appropriately. You don't really want to talk about Welsh nationalism of the Victorian era and not focus in on the modern era and what came before it and what set it up. And when you talk about coal mining and generally how it worked and what it was and the significance of it, you're going to range a lot of different ideas, different concepts, different eras again. And so those kind of things will need basically their own point in time and point in discussion. And also we'll be talking a little bit about Welsh dysphoria, especially to the New World in places like Australia and New Zealand, and kind of how those carried forward the effects of what reflected back onto Wales itself, but also on those people as they themselves moved on and moved out. And like I said, you can't really say, let's take one and we'll follow that along and then move along into a new year beyond that, because so much of it's happening all at the same time, because things explode at very short order after the Tudor period when you have all of the settlements going on and all the changes going on and so because of that we're going to remove that sequential focus and move to a more topical focus but we're still a ways away from that yet so while I discuss this and have discussed this in the past let me be honest and just point out that that's still quite a distance away we're still in the lead up to the beginnings of what we would consider to be the Tudor period, which we're probably going to start heading towards before the next couple of episodes are done. And we'll probably spend the better part of this year talking about the Tudor rule and why it's so significant to Wales on a number of different ways, means, and fashions, culturally, religiously, and politically in ways that it wouldn't have been perceived by some, but very much affects Wales at a granular as well as an, you know, a 40,000 foot level. So we will spend a lot of time with this. So to begin, what we want to talk about as we begin a new year is about the recovery and previously the decline of the Welsh church. In 1400, the clergy in Wales, Catholic Church, were in a similar state to their counterparts in the nobility in Wales. They were isolated, ignored, and abused in some cases. 
this meant that they they mostly jumped on board with the independence movement. Adam Avask being one of the very few exceptions in this particular matter. But no matter if you supported the king or Welsh prince, in the aftermath of Glyndor's downfall, the Welsh church suffered. A church which had never had been based in major centers. It was largely rural in outlook and one that was filled with people who did not speak the language of power. For these reasons, many clergy returned to the fields they served in Wales as protectors, leaders of the social safety net, and writers and readers of manuscripts found themselves struggling to find help from the people who sat in positions of power. The monarchs of King Henry IV, V, and VI were much more concerned with issues in other parts of the realm than they were to help the desires of these clergy in Wales. So many of the attempts to revive their parishes, monasteries, or abbeys came down to finding a willing patron or, with, or in some cases, their dogged determination. For some, this was just not possible. In these cases, it was made worse by long-term society-wide havoc created by the plague and then, of course, the succeeding war. The church would take almost a century to recover, and those appointed to their seats by the king that did not speak Welsh had found that problem magnified, as, of course, parishioners were hostile to those outsiders who did not speak their language and could not actively be a part of their day-to-day -day lives, especially in areas where you didn't have the marcher lords, like in the Principality or the old seat of the Welsh princes like Llewellyn the Last or the Great as examples. So these areas would struggle more than where the marcher lord areas were concerned. But today we're going to talk about sort of the revival of this and how this came about and what was done to try and bring the church back from what effectively was the brink of poverty. In one example of the efforts made by the clergy, we have Thomas Franklin, the abbot of Neath, who was a Cistercian who just happened to also be an able administrator. His leadership saw a number of monks increase, the discipline of the convent was restored, to the abbey was also increasing. Franklin, over a 40-year period, helped to repair and restore the abbeys of Neath and Margam. He was also able to return both of these abbeys to pre-war levels of monks and priests to serve the local populace. It should be noted that one of the advantages Franklin had in that regard was that his patron was Richard Neville, Earl of Warwick and Lord of Glamorgan, who in 1468 confirmed the privileges through a charter for the abbey, and so thus he had the financial backing to help him accomplish all of his goals. As the century wore on, the church returned at least to some sense of normalcy. As by 1440, the Cistercian abbot of Strata, Florida, Reese, began to join his fellow clergy in living more lavish lifestyle. Although maybe spending far above his means wasn't the best use of his time and effort because he died in 1441, just a year later, in debtor's prison. Another aspect of the rise of the clergy was their funding of the poetic class. A few writers, composers of verse, were found in the employ of these men, 
and they enjoyed better lifestyles because of this. Bit of an adjustment that comes when the nobility leadership is removed from able to, being able to fund these kind of things. You end up in a situation where other sources of income are found, and so thus a lot of abbots and priests, bishops, suddenly became big funders of these kind of people. While this revitalization of Wales was happening in some areas, we must note that most of this was going on in the marcher areas, which were controlled by nobility rather than the crown, and these areas of investment would be something they would see as something they could profit from. This would be less of the case in the principality, which was less urbanized, still more typically part of the groups that were loyal to Glyndor and Welsh independence, and were also areas where depopulation and destruction from the wars and the plague would cause the most damage because the general lifestyle income that it was based around was limited and thus you wouldn't have an immediate moving in of people to take those roles back over again. So in some cases, some areas just stayed depopulated. Throughout Wales by 1460, as English fortress towns turned into market communities and continued to be center points of the various shires that were created in the stead of what was once upon a time the principality, it brought to Wales a steady, modest increase in lifestyle, something that would of course reflect on the clergy themselves because as the general public saw modest income increases, they would also seek to increase things on a church-wide level. Church beautification schemes grew from this time period especially during the peace of Edward IV and eventually his successor, Henry VII, the first Tudor monarch. Rebuilds and refurbishments happen across the marches from Tenby to Cardiff to Wrexham, and in the early Tudor period, churches in Asif, Conwy, Newton, and Bangor are all improved in various ways. So now we're not just reaching areas where the English are popular or English is spoken more often or where the controlling interests are the nobles. It's also in areas where the monarchy is looking to influence people, especially a monarchy that bases its legitimacy both in England, but also, very importantly, in Wales. And even in smaller dioceses and parishes in the principality, spending and the desire to refit and repair old buildings brought in a need for money and for the physical effort to do this. Each building, as modest as it might have been, had a clergy attached to it who wanted to make it better than what he had probably originally claimed. And so even just small additions, a, a little wing here, a little entrance decoration there, little changes, bits of new pews, all of these kind of things would have an aspect of giving the building slightly newer, slightly better appearance, and thus build the reputation of the local clergy as they continued to do this, much as was happening throughout the medieval period where you saw massive Gothic churches rising into the skyline where buildings were getting increasingly taller and you would see the beginnings of elaborate designs in buildings and paintings and 
all sorts of different uh, decoration, be it wood, masonry, or even in higher metals like gold and copper and bronze and all of that kind of thing where they would continue to decorate and make things look even more elaborate and even better. So along with, of course, all this, they... If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready-to-eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factor's ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siecla, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts. The revival of these churches was, in part, of course, financed by nobles and monarchs and others of the wealthy classes, but it was also financed by the merchant classes, the guilds, and fraternities who gave generously to help the clergy. But sometimes one aspect which is less discussed is that a number of average, everyday people donated to these projects. They donated time in helping with the construction, they donated crops, which would act as tithes, basically, to give the clergy something to sell off for money or use in other things that they're trying to do. And they obviously would have donated money. Similar to how we fund some charity work today, requests were made to help with specific projects, and pennies and pounds would come in from loyal Christians wanting to show signs of their faith, likely with the encouragement of the priests who were suggesting that it would go better for them in the afterlife having done so. In fact, there's famous cases of citizens taking certain people to court over issues of the misspending of this money. You know, it was, this was meant to be used on a church bell and you used it to go fritter on something else. All of these things are important 
and are key to how the church revived itself. And make no mistake, they linked your afterlife in that commentary and made it important to it. And make no mistake, this is an era where you could start to buy your way into heaven. As clergy across Europe got more and more elaborate in their buildings, as I said, these projects and the desire to live in and worship in the fine cloth and buildings would only get paid by contributions one way or the other. And after a long period of chaos in Catholicism, from popes, anti-popes, each excommunicating each other, to the dominance of both of these popes by various kings who were more concerned about their power and their ability to impress upon both the clergy and to the public who really was in charge. So all of these things were building on each other and finally free of that to some extent with the reuniting of the church into a singular church and the establishment of that church in Rome, it allows the church to now effectively use that knowledge, that financing, the general stability to rebuild and reconstruct. And all through Europe, through the 14th and into the 15th century, we are seeing the changes that are coming about because of that. And especially into the 16th century, we see even more changes coming. And one thing that becomes more and more important and something we will discuss down the road a bit more, but I don't want to get too in the weeds with this because it doesn't affect Wales as much just simply because the way the Reformation happened in Britain was so different than the rest of Europe. But indulgences um, were introduced initially in the Catholic Church long before this to allow for the remission of sins and to give out uh, and avoid either severe penance in this life or some sort of problem in the life to come. And so, in other words, these indulgences were asking for the saints to basically pray for them, to help them overcome these problems, to basically cover for them effectively. The church teaches that the indulgences draw on the treasury of merit accumulated by Christ's sacrifice on the cross, and the virtue of that, along with the penance of the saints, and so thus they not only suffer for your sins and suffer for you, they also take upon you these extra things as long as you're willing to take upon you the obligations that are met from them. And so they are granted for specific works or prayers in proportion to whatever was considered to be the devotion required. This can be done through various means, through either, you know, being required to recite certain prayers, to perform a specific good work, and as we see in the late Middle Ages, funding the charities of the church. And so public good becomes a part of this. So in the Middle Ages, it starts out as being something where it's helping society's social needs. You're, you're paying for the social safety net with your indulgence, which then becomes kind of commercialized. And it's commercialized in ways that I don't think anybody in the beginning expected, including the idea that you would buy relatives out of purgatory, effectively using these indulgences. And it almost becomes an effort in a fundraiser 
you know, give us your money and we'll get you out of prison later sort of con, you know, it's a, it's a get out of jail free card in effect to use a monopoly term. And in a way, this builds a, obviously a unrealistic aspect of life, but it also creates a situation where the church now is being resented for this. And indulgences were, from the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, a target of attacks by Martin Luther and other Protestant theologians who saw them as repugnant, saw them against the basics of Christianity and the basics of Christ's sacrifice, and felt that they were the key to showing how money had become the center of the church's mindset and the church's excesses. And interestingly enough, as the church did eventually reform and remove these excesses and move indulgences back into a more normal role, they didn't go away. So they still exist up until the 20th century, although they eventually are largely abolished. And this has changed a lot of things. But at the time, they started to get quantified by, to show you how far they went, where you could buy certain lengths of time out of purgatory. Did you murder someone? Oh, well, that's going to cost you 100 years in purgatory. Hey, we'll get you out of that with this much money. Oh, do you want 50 years out? Well, that's this much money. It started to become a negotiation tactic, effectively. And so for the wealthy, it was a way to get away with things, in quotes, but it also became a way to leverage financing to help build elaborate buildings, build magnificent structures that will dot the landscape of Europe for millennia to come. But at the same time, it creates an issue because I would say it's a twofold issue. One, you have the public who suddenly become very skeptical about what your clergy is doing. And two, you have a monarchy or a government that's saying, you know, they have an awful lot of money, which they've just gotten with all these buildings. Hmm. And they have a lot of land. Hmm. Don't really like this. Also, they're kind of getting a little too much power and influence. And these clergy are not being held to account. And so for the kings this will become an issue for them to use as a bludgeon against the church to create a separation from the church and allow themselves to put themselves in a different position where no longer would the church dictate to them or take money from them when they can use it on taxes and and you know when they want to fight their wars and they have to deal with the fact that the public has given away half their money to the clergy well no more of that's coming and so all of this becomes a key part of what comes out of the Reformation. It is not the only part by any means. And there are believers who are truly upset and truly sickened by the what they see as excess and against the teachings of Christ. But at the same time, keep in mind that there will be other people who are less scrupulous, who have no problem with the idea of just taking the power and the finance away from the church, and in doing so, reclaim it for themselves. And all of this is key and important and will be talked about at some point, but we have to understand that in Wales, this is a microcosm of what's going on all across Europe. Europe 
has been war-torn. It has been plague-filled for a hundred years. There has been and will be wars going on for hundreds of years after this, of course, but the clergy in a time of what was considered a more peaceful period in some respects turn into a financial tool to create wealth and this is how they get targeted and they got targeted in the past and I would argue it appears that they didn't learn that lesson and so they get targeted once more and we will see that come about in the later years of this podcast as we talk about it but for now I hope you all have as you're listening to this when it first is released a brilliant new year hopefully a better year than the previous one and I hope you had a good holiday season and uh, until next time everybody if you'd like to reach me you can always contact me at welshhistorypodcast at gmail.com or you can uh, always reach out to me on twitter at welshhistorypod or on facebook at facebook.com for slash welshhistorypodcast and of course you if you would like you can join our patron and if you would like to become a patron, you can do so at um, patron patreon.com forward slash Welsh history. And that's everything for today. Thank you, everyone. I appreciate it. And once again, let me just thank my patrons who have been donating and helping me to finance this podcast. And without your support and generosity and willingness to give and your comments suggestions advice and really neat ideas i wouldn't feel like i would know as much as i do and be able to advance my knowledge as well as i have and to be able to reach out to as many people as possible so thank you everyone take care have a great day we'll talk to you later bye bye this has been a Distractions Media production. For more information, you can check out everything we do at distractionsmedia.com. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor, We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor, and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts.